Good morning. My name is Andrew. I'm the pastor here for this congregation. I'm wondering what it will take for you to be all in. No more holding back, no more fence sitting, no more lukewarm. All in with your griefs, with what you have in your hands, in your hearts, in your minds, in your wallets, in your souls. All in with your passion and your pain. What will it look like for you to be all in? I'm going to make a bold statement I've made in the last couple of weeks. It's sort of a perverse statement. If, if this church were to cease to exist on this corner, I hope this neighborhood is a worse place to live. I hope that the children are less loved, the teenagers have less purpose, the marriages are more fractious, the poor are more oppressed, the streets are less safe and dirtier. Now, I don't want that to happen. God forbid that it happens. But the reason I say that is because I want, and I think you probably want this too, whether you've ever been here before or not, I want the church to make a difference in the world. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, there's a part of you, I think, in your heart that says, this ought to, it ought to mean something, it ought to matter. And I want our church to make a difference because our church is here on this corner. I want the children to be more loved, the teenagers to have more purpose, the marriages to be more harmonious, businesses to be more fair in their practices, the poor to be less oppressed, the streets to be safer, the parks to be cleaner. I think the church ought to matter. What ought to happen is that folks come, are ministered to in the church, come on Sunday mornings or in small groups, in Bible studies and other ways, and they go out into the world and they're like ambassadors for Christ, as to use a New Testament phrase in 2 Corinthians 5. They see themselves as is on a mission to change the fabric of society. I hope that this church is making a difference in our community, but it is nothing even close to being inevitable. It's not just going to happen. In fact, it's only going to happen, we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, if we as a church say, we're all in. Yeah, for a long time, Lord, we've been on the fence. I've been having all kinds of doubts, questions. I've been halting. I've had hesitation. But you know what? I want to be all in for you. I'm just going to step up on the edge, so to speak, and I'm just going for it. We have, in fact, what we're calling around here our all-in campaign. We'll run through the beginning of May. I hope that at the end of this campaign, more people who right now are sort of like this, just on the edge, or kicking the tires, or just putting their finger up to the wind to see which way it's blowing. I hope at the end of our campaign, we have more people who are saying, you know what, I'm committed here. I believe in what God is doing through this church, and I want to be a part of it. I'm wondering if that's you today. Maybe God is tugging you. Even if you're like, as Leon just prayed, even if you're someone who feels like that you don't have anything to offer, you have lots of fears, doubts, insecurities, my prayer is that God might be tugging you to say, all right, I want to I be all in. So we've looked at some different areas, and we'll be looking at each of them in the next couple of weeks. Last week we talked about what it looks like to be all in for service. Next week, what does it look like to be all in for prayer? Today I want to look at what it means to be all in with what we have. Specifically financially, what does it look like to be all in with what we have in our wallets or in our garages or in our bank accounts? Because it doesn't work that you can say, yeah, I'm all in except for this. I, I have a little son at home, and he loves to wrestle. That's one of his things he likes to do. But before I, I wrestle with him, I take my cell phone out of my pocket. I take my wallet out of my pocket. I take my keys out, pocket knife, chapstick. I put it all aside, take my watch off so I can wrestle with him. And a lot of us are like that when it comes to our lives in God. We say, yeah, God, I'm committed. Well, except for these things you know God okay I will give you X Y and Z but then I get to keep you know one two three 
it's like a contractual obligation so many of us make. And I'm just wondering if the reason so many of us lives li- live, lead and live lives of such um, defeat and stress and anxiety and misery is because we're not really committing all the way. It doesn't work. You can't have one foot in and one foot out. You can't be lukewarm. You can't sit on the fence. Where are you today? I want to look today at a passage from actually what Leon just referenced, the Exodus. The Bible has Genesis and then the second book is Exodus. And it's a proper, appropriately named. It's about um, the deliverance of God's people from slavery in Egypt. And for the last thousands of years, God's people have used that story as an example of what God does. Our God is a God who sees people in bondage to slavery, to addiction, to misery, to fear, to loneliness. Our God is a God who sees people in slavery, hears their cries, and pulls them out. In fact, the Exodus is a great example of what God ultimately is doing all over the place. We have a God who saves. This is from Exodus chapter 16. Here's the background. The Israelites have been in Egypt. They've been oppressed. They cried out to God. God heard them. And as it said in the Psalms, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he pulled them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, into the promised land. But here in Exodus 16, they find themselves still yet to reach the promised land. And despite what God has already done and how true is this, the people are complaining. If there's one thing I know about you, because I know it about me, is that we are a complaining bunch of people. Not a whole lot has changed. So here we are, Exodus chapter 16. In the desert, verse 2, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There, how quickly we forget. How quickly we forget where we've been. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling, grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God. And that evening quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Let me just pause right there. We have a word, we call it manna. God provides manna in the wilderness. Manna is what is being provided here, and the word manna comes from the Hebrew word, uh, phrase, what is it? So manna just means, what is it? That's just what it means. For they did not know what it was, and Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer, an ancient measurement, take an omer for each person that you have in your tent. Then Moses said to them, verse 19, no one is to keep any of it until morning. So they're being provided for every day, but they're not supposed to take more than they need. We'll come back to that. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning. But it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. And each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. Let's pray. God, You're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of the Exodus, the God who saves, the God who delivers his people. God, give us that message today through my words. Take our thoughts and think through them. Lord, and take our hearts and set them afire for you and for your precious creation. Amen. 
God provided manna every day, and he said, only take as much as you need today. And the Israelites, some of them, took more than they needed, and it began to rot and stink and was infested with maggots. I want to spend a little of time this morning talking about maggots. Now, not literally, I hope. I have had the misfortune, we probably all have, of seeing maggots a few times. It's not a nice sight. But I think it's a powerful image that Exodus provides for us here. I have got to be one of the worst grocery shoppers in the country. It's just hard for me. My wife gives me a list, and I don't know where anything is in the grocery store, so what should what would take her like a half an hour it takes me like two hours. I'm not, I'm not kidding, okay? I'm being serious. It takes me forever because I'll say, oh, okay, this is that end. Where is this? And I look down every aisle, and then I finally find it another aisle. Or I can't find it. I call her, and I say, where is this? And she says, blah, 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 next to here. Oh, I go get it. So it takes me forever, but then the other problem I have is that I always buy things that aren't on the list. Am I, am I the only one? Are there any other guys out there like that? You, you take the list and you say, you get ambitious. See, in the grocery store, I have these very high dreams about my culinary skill and taste. You know, I say, you know what? I should start making my own applesauce and I'll buy all the apples. Or, or you know, I am going to cook a whole cow tonight or whatever. You know what? I'm even giving up meat entirely. I'm only going to eat vegetables for the next three weeks, okay? So I come home hours later with a trunk full of groceries, and my wife says, why did you buy that? We're not going to eat it all. You never buy what you eat. And I'll say, you never eat what you buy. And I say, yeah, I will. We'll do it this time. And then a few weeks later, she goes to the grocery store, comes home. I'm helping her unload the brown paper bags, and there's no room in the fridge. Why? Because I've stuffed with all the stuff that I didn't eat that's now going to waste. It's spoiling. I just, I find that such an apt spiritual metaphor too about our lives. I don't know about you, but I'm often all about the getting and spending, about the hoarding, about the consuming, about me thinking about myself, and I have so many things in my life that are rotting over here on the side, so to speak. I don't want to think about that a little bit this morning. I want to think about the things in our lives that are spoiling, that are rotting, that are going to waste. One of the ways that the things in our lives are spoiling is that they spoil our peace. They take away our peace. They give us anxiety. You've heard the phrase before, often the things we own begin to own us. My wife and I have two cars. We have one old car and one new car. Which one do you think I'd drive? The old one, because I'm a perfect husband. Exactly. So, (laughs) when I drive the new car, I'm all scared. I'm worried that someone's going to, you know, some soccer mom's going to open all her kids next door and they're going to open the doors and dent up my car. Or someone's going to push a shopping cart right into my car. So I park, you know, if I go to the grocery store in the new car, I park as far away as possible. where There's nobody around me. You know, I don't want to have another car within about 20 spots. That's what I go. But when I drive the car, I normally drive, and here is a picture of it. Now, in the picture, it looks, it's a deceptively good picture. It looks a little bit like Knight Rider's car, okay? <laughs> it's not. It's a short little two-door Pontiac Sunfire, and it looks like I poured acid all over it. I, I realize that. Here's the thing, though. I don't care what happens when I'm in that car. I'll park anywhere. You know, there's one of those spots that says compact car only, and there's two huge tanks parked between them, and I'll, just, I'll shoot right in there. I don't care if I have to open the door like this and kind of get out. It doesn't matter to me because... Because I don't really care about what happens to the car. And i got to tell you, in a way, there's such a peace in those kind of things. You know, you bought 
that house, the car, the cell phone. You got this, you got that. And you thought this was going to bring you uh, joy and peace and satisfaction. And I bet with the many of people that are here today, there's some of you that have serious anxiety and stress in your lives because you're worried about your possessions. How am I going to make that payment? Am I going to be able to repair this or that, et cetera, et cetera? The Israelites were given provision every day. It was called manna. They were sent out to gather, and God said, don't take more than you need because it spoils after one day. I'll provide for you tomorrow. And a lot of us have lives full of things that are rotting and spoiling all around us because we're, we're allowing them to own us, and they give us a tremendous amount of anxiety. That's one way things in our lives are rotting and spoiling. Here's another one. <clears throat> Whether you have a lot or little, there's probably some of you here today who are really worried about your finances. You're really worried about being able to, to, to make payroll this month. You're really worried about being able to pay off uh, your mortgage this month or pay for your rent or your child's school fees, etc., etc. I really do believe that we have a God who provides. I really believe that. And we have people here today who could stand up if I gave them the opportunity and would say, we really didn't know how we were going to make this payment, meet that schedule, but God provided in an unlooked for and unexpected way. I really believe that's true. But what happens to so many of us is that we stop thinking about God providing and we take it all on ourselves to provide. Boy, that's a rough place to be. You talk about being in slavery. So many of us are enslaved to financial worry today. I just, I cannot believe that's God's plan for us. I can't believe it. Now, there's difficulties we all have in life. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about kind of this gnawing anxiety day after day, week after week about our finances. I wonder if those things are kind of spoiling us. They're causing us to rot when we have that kind of worry. We put our trust in ourselves and not in God's provision. This morning, are there things in your life, if, if you're honest, if you're honest, that are tending toward um, uh, decomposition, towards death, that are rotting, they're spoiling? Are there things that are beginning to own you rather than you own them? Are the things that you thought would give you joy actually just leading to more heartache and anxiety? See, the Israelites were given manna every day, and God said, I'm going to provide for you every day, every day, every day. Don't worry about the future. Don't try to hoard and keep it. I provide. I provide. You know, if we're going to be all in, we're going to have to be all in with what we have. We're going to have to really trust that God provides and that he provides for a reason. One of the other ways I think that our things begin to spoil in our lives is when we use them in ways that impoverish everybody else. You know, so many of us have so much more than we need, and I think God blesses us to be a blessing. And so many of us have been so blessed by God, and yet, so to speak, everything is rotting around us because we're not using it for others, we're just using it for ourselves. I wonder if that's your story this morning. And you know, that actually applies to you whether you have a lot or a little. We sometimes believe the lie that if I only had blah, 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 X, Y, and Z, then, then I would, in fact, become very generous with what I have. But because I don't, I can't be generous yet. And, you know, I just wonder if God really wants to entrust 
those of us who have trouble with small things with something large. You don't just become generous. You have to cultivate a heart of generosity. This is particularly true if you're here today, you're a young adult, you're just making your first money. You know, you may not have a whole lot, you may not have a whole lot to give, but you need to start cultivating a heart of generosity today. How sad it would be at the end of your life when you're an old man or a woman to look back and have an honest evaluation and realize that most of your life was spent on accumulating and what you accumulated was just rotting and spoiling and you missed opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to bless others through the way God has blessed you. I just wonder where we are as a church with that. You know, we can't say we're all in, God, in the things that, that might seem easy. We can't say, yeah, we're all in with prayer, although prayer is actually very difficult. Yeah, I'm all in in serving others, but I don't want to talk about money. I don't want to be involved with that. Can you imagine what would happen in our community if we became known as a generous people? Can you imagine what needs we could meet? What an exciting opportunity I think God would continue to put in front of us. What if we saw a wrong in our, in our neighborhood or suffering and, and we said, God, use us to write it. And if we need to write a check to make it happen, we'll do it. If we need to show up and get our hands dirty, we'll do it. What a powerful testimony. I want us to be a church that's known for generosity. So, let me be really practical. We have three goals for this campaign. I don't want to talk about them all today at great length, but the first is to get 200 folks involved serving regularly. The second is to get 300 people involved in what we call our kitchen groups. These are our small groups. The idea is we just don't want to be serving and become super, superficial and about others. We also want to be growing spiritually and have something to give others. So it's not just about what we do, it's also about who we're becoming. Goal one, 200 folks serving. Goal two, is about our spiritual growth, 300 people in kitchen groups. Goal three is we want to be a place that reaches young people in our community, but we need some space to do it. We own an old building, which we currently can't use, two floors of behind us, and it will take about $1.5 million to renovate it. My goal is about 100 families pledging that money over three years. Now, don't do the math and think, I'm, I'm on the hook for $15,000. That's not the way it works. In fact, according to Jesus, people who can give a a, a very small amount in the eyes of the world are often giving the largest gifts and God uses those kind of gifts powerfully so it's not about the amount but here's why I'm talking about this today I want us to be a church that models generosity so even though this building is not for us it's for people in the neighborhood to reach kids who don't currently come here I still want to take a portion of the money that we raise whatever it is whether it's a lot or a little whether we meet a goal or not God knows I want to take a portion of what we take and give 10% of it away back into the community. And I have my eyes on this park right across the street. No, there are no friends of Garrett Park. It's an old thing. We did an event there a couple uh, years ago, a concert outside in the city said it was the first time somebody applied for a permit for years and years and years. Nobody cares about that park. And I think we should. I think we should leave a mark in the community that says, we don't care if you ever come in the doors or not. We're committed to you. So I'm telling you, I want to take whatever we raise and take a tenth of it, in old-fashioned terms, that's called a tithe, a tenth, and say we're going to make a difference with it. We're working out some of the possibilities uh, as we speak. Now that scares me because I worry that what if we don't have enough? What if as a church we don't have enough? And you worry the same things, don't you? What if we don't have enough? Once we make a commitment for financial generosity, what if we don't have enough? You know, and the only way to test it is just to go all in. 
There's no way to know any other way. But I would tell you this. We live in a country in which our government and our people and our culture is about buying things and spending money you don't have. And it hasn't made us any healthier or happier. And I think that applies to individual families as well. I'm aware, I have a family too, I'm aware of the fear about taking what you have and saying, God, I'm giving it over to you. But there's only one way to do it. You just have to jump. You just have to jump. Now, it should be noted, God had brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, and they grumbled. And he provided manna for them miraculously every day, and they abused it. And it should be noted that God's response was not, I have given you enough chances, I'm turning my back on you. God's response was, I'm committed to you no matter what. And I just want you to know that this morning, regardless of what kind of mistakes you've made in your financial life or in other areas of your lives, regardless of what kind of baggage you bring in here today, I believe we have a God who's committed to us even to the point of death on the cross, which means we have a God who can be trusted for our welfare. And so today I, I, I want to talk about financial commitment. I want to talk about standing up and just committing financially. But if you're here today with other things on your heart, you're here with grief, you're here with pain, you're here with tremendous guilt, you're here with bitterness, with anger, with fear, with feelings of inadequacy, I don't know what's in your, story, in your hearts or what's your story today. You're here with emptiness in your heart. It's not just about committing financially, it's about being all in. And I just maybe want to push you a little bit and challenge you to, maybe today's the day to take all that you have, your doubts, your fears, your insecurities, your selfishness, your greed, your bitterness, and just go all in with it. Say, God, this is who I am. Take me just as I am, as it says in the old song. And we have a God who has demonstrated time after time after time to be right where we are with whatever it takes. We have a God who can be trusted because we have an all-in God ourselves. Before my wife and I were engaged, we were dating seriously, and I hadn't yet met her siblings. At the time, one of them was living in Las Vegas, so Elaine and I uh, got on a plane. We flew out to Las Vegas to visit her siblings. So I met her brother and her sister and her sister's husband. And one day, we left the city. We went out into the desert. We crossed over the Hoover Dam. We saw Lake Mead, and then we went down hiking along the Colorado River. And there, it's through a little canyon, and there's cliffs all around. And my brother-in-law is the sort of guy, he's an all-in guy, particularly when it comes to physical things. He's sort of a daredevil. If he sees something, he's going to jump off of it, I can guarantee you. So he climbed up to this cliff and jumped off into the water. And then I'm left in this predicament. <laughs> I want them to like me. I want them to show that I'm worthy of their sister. We're not yet engaged, but I knew I was going to pop the question at that point. I guess I should do it too. So I get up there on the edge. And I'm thinking, you know what, after looking down, and it was probably about a 500-feet cliff in my mind. Uh, <laughs> I'm standing up there thinking, you know what, I'd like to be an old man. It's not worth it. And then there's another part of me that's thinking, you know what, life is short. Just go for it. And I'm there between these two minds. And I, I knew that my brother-in-law had already jumped and was safe, and the water was 
pretty deep. And I knew that it was, it was a safe thing to do. Intellectually, I knew that. And behind me, actually, there was this guy who had been following us. He wasn't part of our group from the city, and he came up, and he was an interesting fellow in that he had, like, an empty six-pack in his hand and a big bruiser and dog with him, and he said, Dude, if you go in and you have problems, I'll be right in after you. I'm thinking, <laughs> okay, that makes me feel so good. So anyway, I'm standing up there, and I have this idiot behind me saying that kind of stuff, and I'm thinking, is this worth it? I want to do it. Do I not want to do it? And, and I, I think the metaphor applies to so many of us in the Christian life, and particularly in the area of finances. We know intellectually that what we're doing isn't working anyway, that a desire for more is never filled. We know that these desires we have in our hearts that we've been trying to fill with other things don't work. We know that there's nothing else besides the love of God that's come to us in Jesus Christ that can make something meaningful out of grief, out of insecurity, out of fear. We know that in a part of us, but there's also the reasonable fear we have when you're standing there on the edge and you haven't jumped. So I'm standing there, and ultimately I said, I'm just going to go for it. And I jumped. And I have to tell you, I never regretted it. Not one inch, not one second. Even when I first jumped and you have the feeling of falling, I didn't regret it. And I think that's also true about the Christian life. We have a God who, who, who makes it impossible for us to regret because he's a God that takes whatever we can give and magnifies it and blesses it in many and manifold ways. So if you're standing on the edge this morning about finances or about other things, can I just say I think it's totally worth it? Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. This is the point in our service when we receive an offering. Before I talk about that, there is at the end of all of your rows a little black attendance pad. It is very helpful to us if you fill it out. Even if you're here every week, it's, we use the data. It really makes a difference. Now, <clears throat> I say it every week, but you need to hear it again. If you're here today visiting, we are not after your money. We don't, we're not, we're not that... We're not, we don't want to be that kind of church. We hope that you're just blessed. But if you are here and this is your home church, maybe it's time just to be generous with what you have. Just say, God, use the small portion of things I have and make it great. And we're going to sing a song just now that's about the poor and powerless among us. And if the church isn't the body that's reaching out to the poor and powerless, I don't know who else is. So when you give, you're not just giving to some big, bland entity. You're giving to make a difference in the lives of the people who desperately need it. So maybe as you give today, and as Josh and Krista lead us in the song, you could be praying this song and say, God, use this church to reach the poor and powerless. Use my life in that way too. Lord, take what I have and do something great with it.